Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to our first episode of 2024 in harmony with Piedmont Opera. And we are kicking off the new year with a guest that I think a lot of people that listen to this episode probably know her because she's been described, at least to me, as a Piedmont Opera crowd favorite. Jody Burns, are you okay with that? With, with being known as that? I'm okay with that. I'll take it. <laughs> I don't think anybody listening uh, would, would disagree. But Jody, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Uh, you, you're here locally living in Winston-Salem. Where, where are you currently setting up shop? Yeah, so I, uh, I live in Winston-Salem, close to downtown. I um, have been living here for quite some time now. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. Um, where I did my undergraduate degree, and I came here to do my graduate degree in um, a year that I will not be naming. (laughs) And um, I ended up finding a home here because it's such a wonderful community that really is supportive of the arts, and I've gotten to have a really um, pretty exciting um, career with Winston-Salem being my home base. I can sing... Like with there, there are so many great organizations here: the Winston Salem Symphony, Piedmont Opera, of course, um, the Piedmont Wind Symphony, and just numerous organizations that you you want to keep working with and you love to to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And um, I also uh, had a really cool experience um, outside of the classical and opera world, having a band and being um, known for music in lots of different styles and um iterations Mm -hmm. so winston-salem was just like it felt like the spot for me where everything sort of fell into place what kind of band i have so i write songs that are pretty i guess you could describe them as like cinematic they're inspired by 1970s like rock and roll like carol king and queen and stuff like that okay um and we haven't played in quite some time um but it it was uh, it was important to me, and something that I think is cool that oftentimes people don't realize about opera is that there are these ties between opera and pop music. Mm-hmm. Um, you find them all over the place once you do both of them. Sometimes people think of them as being really separate and distinct, but there are a lot of ties that I enjoy getting to explore. Yeah, I, I like asking this question to all of our guests. Where did your love of music originate? So that came from definitely my dad, who um, was a drummer, is a drummer, mm-hmm. a percussionist, and um, my grandmother, who used to make my dad listen to the opera every Saturday afternoon. I think it was the Texaco live broadcast back in at that time, um, but they played the Met Opera every Saturday. Oh, and okay. He and his mom would listen to it. So he grew up listening to opera and appreciating it and classical music, and he loved Beethoven. Um, And then I didn't really understand this as a child, but one of the reasons my grandma loved it so much was because my great-grandmother had been an opera singer before she made a slight life change and married my great-grandfather, who was a farmer, and moved to a tiny town in uh, Wisconsin Mm. and didn't sing anymore. But I think she sang around the house a lot, and I think that her voice is probably in my body in a certain way. Um, so my grandma really instilled this love of music in me and, um, and supported me 
all the way through. And when did you realize that you had a, that that you had the gift of being able to sing to get to 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 express music through your voice? Um. Well, I made my debut at the age of three in the restroom of the Olive Garden <laughs> when I was singing some uh, somewhere out there from the movie uh, An American Tale. Uh-huh. And um, an old woman next to me said, you have a beautiful voice. And that's when I knew, I think, really. You're, was, really? That is, I know, I know, it's, it's, I know it's, I'm being silly. It's a, but... it's a silly story, but at the same time is... is you know, do you have, is that a, a vivid memory of someone, the first time somebody said to you that, oh, wow, you have a nice voice? That really is. I'm, yeah. I mean, I know it's silly, but I, I really do remember that moment because I was just, couldn't stop singing. I was always singing. And then this lady complimenting me, I think it did have an effect on how I felt about it. And, um, you know, I, I was, I could hold a tune mm-hmm. from a very young age. And so I wasn't like a super chatty person, but I was always singing. And um, I had a music educators are so important. And I think all of our stories, either you had a horrible one that made you push yourself to get there because you believed in yourself, or you had wonderful ones that really supported you. Mm-hmm. And I had like an elementary school teacher who told my parents, you've got to keep her singing because she has something really special. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that was my next question is how did it progress from the, the restroom of the Olive Garden to mm-hmm. to getting to the point now where you worked at it and and honed it to the to the stage of being able to be a performer. And so yeah, you had teachers at a very early age that made sure that, that your family knew this she needs to stay with this. Yeah, I I had this elementary school music teacher who was really supportive and influential. Mm. Um, Sharon Sazdanoff was her name. She worked at Indianola Elementary School in Columbus, Ohio. Shout out to her. Shout out Sharon Sazdanoff. <laughs> and then um, my parents got me into a really high-level choir early on that mm. I had um, to audition for, and then they carted me back and forth to these rehearsals Monday and Thursday for pretty much since from the time that I was 10 until I graduated from um, high school. Um, and the director of that program, Amy Shivington, she was a really um, big influence. That was at Otterbein College, um, where she held this um, children's choir that she had um, started. And a high school, a high school choir teacher, Kathy Wallace Gall, who is no longer with us, um, but she, she just, she just gave me the space to mm-hmm. grow and the encouragement and. Um, a lot of really powerful female, like a lot of powerful women who gave me space, gave me encouragement and taught me how to do it my way. Yeah. Who did you, so you had a lot of teachers and a lot of mentors along the way. Who were the people that you enjoyed listening to? The the voices where you say, oh, I wish one day I could sing like this person. Okay. So I think my first favorite was Beverly Sills. If we're talking about opera. If we're not talking about opera, either one, yeah. My first favorite was um, Bette Midler. Oh, okay. I was like obsessed with her because <laughs> I don't know, probably she had huge red hair and um, could sing and was just like so big. And I, I knew how to sing, but I didn't know quite how to be big like she was. Mm-hmm. Um, Having yeah. that presence, yeah. this huge presence, yeah. and this incredible sense of humor, while also like 
singing with such deftness and like precision, like it's, you know, she's got it, like the it thing. And, um, so she, I loved watching her and, um, listening to her and, uh, and then Joni Mitchell on another, uh, on the other side of that, a much more, you know, stayed Mm -hmm. quiet sort of power that she has, um, behind a guitar or a dulcimer but still could command that same attention so much presence Mm -hmm. and the intensity and like looking at i think two people that are so you'd see on the opposite side of of how to hold a stage and under you know getting to see how they do that and what the magic how they use their specific magic yeah um did it take some time to learn that like uh, the phrase holding a stage that's so much a part of of performing because you know you're not just sitting in a, in a studio and recording and the only thing people know is your voice you're on a stage you're performing especially with opera uh, how challenging with that was that to learn that part of this performing art i think that's probably um hello i think that's probably the the hardest part mm. i mean you have to you have to be thoughtful in your singing. You have to be really well prepared. You have to um, work very hard to achieve, you know, being able to create the sounds that you want to put out, like exactly how you'd like them to be, mm-hmm. um, of course. But, yeah, you have to be like you're just one small person. No matter how tall or small or whatever you are, on a stage you're small until you take it over. Mm-hmm. And... um that that's a very challenging thing to learn and also like a a thing that i think can be difficult for um a woman to allow herself to do to to choose uh and to feel like um what's the word empowered but not just empowered but that that you're allowed to take over the room and that you're and that you're going to do it with generosity and an invitation mm-hmm. to an audience and not with some kind of like tyranny those things are really different you have to say i'm open and that's why i'd like you to come in and not look at me or else yeah people don't respond to that so you have to find this balance that's tricky yeah so it it's it's not just the confidence to do that, but it's also, it, it has to be the right atmosphere, the right situation. And, and maybe the word is enabled, you know, you have to be enabled to, to do something like that. But I would imagine the confidence to do that is something that's hard to develop too. It's hard to develop. Um, but once you find it and you capture it the first few times, and you realize what an impact it has on people watching. Um, it becomes something that you can't wait to do again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I do think the important part is that it's about inviting the audience to join you and to opening yourself up, um, being vulnerable. It's, it's kind of seems maybe a little bit trite or something to say, but it's like in order to sing well, you have to stand tall and you have to open up your body and mm. open your chest. And normally we sit kind of, you know, right now, how am I sitting? Like a little bit slumped. <laughs> right, right. I'm not quite that open. You have to be extremely open in order to sing. And that openness also creates in it this invitation. 
Um, and once you get to, to know how to do it, you can't wait to do it again. But um, it can be difficult to maintain in between shows. Like, it's been a while. Do I still have it? Where Where is that? i got to find it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When is the last time that you performed then? I just performed, let's see, with um, my really great, wonderful friend and composer and pianist, Kenneth Frizzell, who is a former teacher at the School of the Arts and also um, at UNC School of the Arts and also just a brilliant and um, renowned composer. We did a concert at um, Renolda House of songs by Libby Holman, who was an early Broadway star. Okay. Who was married to? Do you know that story? I don't. Libby, Libby Holman was married to um, the uh, one of the sons of the Reynolds family. Oh, okay. And visiting Renolda House one evening, he died, and she was in the room, and people thought maybe she had done it. And it's a really interesting story and a big part of Winston Salem lore. You should definitely check it out. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, but we did songs that she had made popular and she became a big, she was a Broadway and a big blues star. Oh wow. And so we did songs that she sang together. That was the most recent one, I think. Coming up soon on the triad podcast network. Yeah. The, the true crime series. <laughs> <laughs> Libby. Yeah. You should do it. Yeah. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about your experience. How would you describe your experience at, at School of the Arts? Um, as a student, mm-hmm. and now I work there as well. I, I'm in, uh, on the faculty there. The School of the Arts is really a place that I came to, and it opened up a whole new realm of what I understood about singing. Um, I think before that I had known how to make a pretty sound come out of my mouth and, um, and I was very expressive naturally. Um, I think teenage angst I carried, I hung on to a lot of that and that just made me naturally emotive in a way that sometimes we lose that as we grow older, but I hadn't lost it. And, um, but at the, at the school of the arts, um, the professors there helped me find that thing that is owning a stage, communicating through the voice and not just, um, you know, making it, it big enough and impactful enough that it reaches the whole room. I could, I mean, this is a podcast, so you can't see it, but my voice teacher, uh, Marilyn Taylor, who is um, Jamie Albritton's wife, mm-hmm. Many of you will know her. Um, she taught me how to do this thing where you lengthen your neck slightly upwards and tilt your head just slightly down, and suddenly you look terrifying, and it works whether you're in the back of a 3,000-foot hall or you're in the front row. You can see it. It's these subtle movements, and then these subtleties in the color of sound that you put out, you have choices. You can make it bright, and that can mean anger. You can make the sound warmer, and that can mean love or or sadness. Mm-hmm. And they t- they taught me how to unlock this whole box full of colors that wow. I didn't know was inside. That is, it's like one of the differences that people who think they don't like opera usually they probably haven't heard somebody who knows how to unlock colors like that. Yeah, that's that's fascinating in that 
there is so much more and the wonderful faculty and staff over at school of the arts find ways to, to get into the details beyond. Cause you said there's a lot of people out there that can open their mouth and make amazing sounds come out, but there is, there's so much more that you can tap into um, that can make such a difference. And, and that seems to be a lot of what you picked up while you were there and are still probably picking up while you're there. Yeah. It's cool to be able to be uh, an educator. I love being an educator mm-hmm. and to, it, that just means you're constantly learning and you're, you, you're, I feel really, um, my life is enriched by figuring out how to give in the information that I have, um, to a student in language that they'll understand and that works for them because you'll have three students that you're trying to teach the same concept but one of them works better with imagery like okay now twinkle it down a waterfall like a little pearl and that works for them but for this other person they need it to be much more literal right and there's another person who needs it to um, be more anatomically described Um, so I get the opportunity to learn and become a, a stronger artist by helping them unlock their artistry. Yeah, that's great. Um, what can you tell us about your involvement, how it started, and and what your relationship is currently with, with Piedmont Opera? So I did my first role with Piedmont Opera when I was still in graduate school. I played a character in this opera, uh, The Marriage of Figaro, named mm-hmm. um, oh, Barbarina. And um, so that was my very first time uh, having a, a full role. And um, over the years, gosh, I can't number the amount of times I've sung with them, but um, I, The Elixir of Love, we did uh, Maria Stuarda, not long ago, um, I got to premiere, do the Southeastern premiere of Kevin Putz's opera Silent Night, which is this incredible award-winning opera, which hopefully many of you who are listening saw, or if you haven't seen it before, you should watch it somehow. Um, but yeah, I've gotten to be part of some really special and powerful performances here. And <clears throat> Piedmont Opera really stands out to me um, in my years of of working as a singer in the level of productions that they put on um, for an opera company their size and in a city our size, you would be, I think, pretty surprised to um, to go to cities that I think probably would have larger budgets and, um, you know, more resources available to them and you wouldn't see a better opera than you see mm. at Piedmont. Yeah, that's high praise, and and, and tr- I think a lot of everybody listening would agree it's with that. In- it's incredible. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the first performance that you did is the same production that the that will be put on in March, The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, tell us about your role in this upcoming version of it. So okay, yeah, I'm a little bit. This role is a little different from Barbarina. Um, the Countess is a role that is on a lot of um, a lot of people's bucket list. She has these two really incredible 
arias, these two incredible songs, these melodies that she gets to sing. And she has this space, I think, that's really interesting in the opera. She has this bedroom. And uh, her bedchamber is where you first meet her. And you've just come out of this pretty raucous, cacophonous uh, scene where um, all of this craziness is going on and there's a lot of really fast talking and a lot of... And then the scene opens to this broad chamber and there's just one person and it's so quiet compared to what was just happening. Um, And I think that's a really powerful and special thing that they did that um, the librettist uh, Lorenzo da Ponte and Mozart did together was create this this just this whole different sense of space for mm-hmm. her to enter the room um and yeah she's an interesting character because in we're in a comedy so in this day there's this is all set in one day there's just going to be a tremendous amount of ridiculousness that happens <laughs> like ridiculousness um like the most soap opera y storyline you can think of it's like this lady wants to marry this guy but he can he owes her money so he's probably gonna have to marry her but he really doesn't want to and he wants to marry her and this guy is hitting on his you know wife or his future wife and um then there's this story turn where the one lady marcellina who wants to marry figaro turns out to be his mom like it's one of those like (laughs) what kind of moments it's like so goofy so there's this cuckoo crazy comedy going on, but the characters are all, or I, maybe I can't say all, but generally speaking, they're very sincere. They're sincere people. The love and the admiration and the, the genuine friendship between Susanna and Figaro, who are members of the servant um, class, is very true and real. It's not silly, and they're not caricatures. And that was that was pretty um, revolutionary at the time, how human the, the characters are who are servants. They're not just caricatures of somebody who's sly and mm-hmm. shrewd and can get things done. They're thoughtful, wise, loving, good people. And... Um, the Countess and Susanna are very good friends. And you can tell right away from the first conversation that they have together, the way that they speak to each other, you can tell how familiar they are with one another. And so I think that's really cool because it's not only uncommon in a storyline for a member of the noble class and a servant to have a genuine friendship, but it's also uncommon for women to have a genuine friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and so the countess, her, whose name is actually Rosina, and Susanna are very, very good friends. And it's a real friendship. And it's not based on um, the fact that there is conflict because the count is trying to get it on with Susanna. <laughs> They're not friends because of the conflict. They're friends from before it and despite it. And it's difficult for me to think of another like couple of women in literature who would be in the same situation where one of them's 
uh, like this one, the countess, her husband is trying to get with this other girl and she doesn't resent her. She instead hatches a plan with her to try to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah, that that does seem very unique. Um, and yet the other thing, too, that you mentioned, you're, it's a comedy, but you're also having to channel all these very serious emotions, everyday emotions, intense emotions. Yeah. Is that is that a challenge to know that this is supposed to be a comedy, but uh, there's there's some real life and, like you said, soap opera-y type of stuff happening here? Yeah. And, I mean, we're in this... Beaumarchais, who wrote the, um, the, origin, the play, you know, he's very much making fun of the nobility. And I'm a member of that. The Countess is a member of the nobility. So you have to be careful to figure out how how real is she is she part of the um is she part of the the thing that we're all supposed to be making fun of or does she live slightly outside of it um i think she lives slightly out, outside of it uh because she was raised in the bourgeois um class not knowing that she was a noble until later on in her um well in the she's the leading character in the Barber of Seville, which is the prequel to the marriage of Figaro. Um, and she doesn't realize she's a noble until later on at the end of the opera, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so yeah, but how real is she and how silly can she be? Because she has to also show real emotion. And I think part of the way that you, you, um, you handle that or the angle I'm going at it, with is unlike other characters that are in what seems to be like a tragic situation, a tragic ingenue character, I think that she has hope. I think that they've been married for about three years and he's like, his eye is wandering. But she has hope and I think a sense of um, strength that lets her sadness not be so tragic that it seems in opposition to the the comedic like tempo mm. and sense of the opera. Yeah. So who gets to play the role of the count and do you have uh some, some familiarity with that individual? Yes, so Richard Oyarzaba who uh, many of you will know from his productions here and because he went to the School of the Arts and mm. we were colleagues and peers at school together and he is just having a wonderful career so well deserved i'm not just saying it because this is a podcast and i have to be nice he is the nicest kindest human being and a really smart intelligent thoughtful uh person a wonderful wonderful colleague and um yeah so i'm really looking forward to working with him because it's been some time yeah do you have a dream role out there that you have looked at is your, your white whale. I do. I do. Um, that would be the opera La Traviata, um, Violetta. She's also a really compelling female character for her time and place in literature. She's really kind. Um, and, and sacrifices a lot for someone that she loves. But um, <clears throat> one of the 
this is maybe a little bit greedy, but she has like every beautiful melody in the whole opera. Like every time there's a good one that somebody else sings, she gets to sing it too. So like every good part, she gets to sing it too. (laughs) (laughs) And she gets to like tragically die at the end on a high note. And I mean, that's just... It's got it all. It's got it all. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Um, Okay, so... More of a uh, more of a big picture question. As somebody who is involved in opera as a performer, as a student, as a teacher, educator, what are some of the challenges that you see in in the world of opera currently, and and things that you hope to maybe see in the in the near or distant future, um, in terms of making sure that this is still relevant and continues, and and also continues to grow. Yeah. Really easy question. It's a it? really yeah. simple, yeah. I've got a quick five <laughs> word answer. Um, gosh, there are, yeah, there are a lot of uh, challenges um, that have been going on really now for several decades. Um, people's interest in opera has been waning for, you know, quite some time now because it can seem sort of antiquated and like it's difficult to connect with. And there are so many other options for ways that you can listen to music, genres you can listen to. Why choose opera? Um, And opera companies, I mean, I think one of the reasons to choose opera is also part of the struggle of it is an opera takes a lot of people to make it happen. In that way, it creates and sustains a community of uh, artists, of um, people that work with their hands, building sets, designers, um, stage hands, stagecraft workers, theater workers. It creates a giant job sphere, but it also has to have people behind it who will help support getting all of these people into a room to make something incredible, not to mention the orchestra Um, and all of the people that it takes to put one of those together. And, you know, your, your team here at Piedmont Opera, who's working day in and day out. Um, so I don't have any real magnificent answer for how we, we fix, um, getting people to come. I know that this is something that if you've seen me speak on um, a Facebook live cast or something like that, talking with Jamie, you've heard me say something like this before, but um, I think that opera singing by its nature and when it's done with the kind of heart and soul that it requires to create those colors and to take over space, like we were talking about, it has, um, because the voice is being amplified by our physical body and not by a microphone necessarily, when I'm singing and you hear it and you feel something, it makes your cheeks turn red or your hands tense up because of the emotion you're feeling. That's because I'm vibrating your body with my body and that's it. It's just those two things creating waves that are like very viscerally real and um, I think all good singing has that quality, that it, it shakes you and it 
you walk out of the room having been changed by the way that it made you feel. And opera is this gives you this real access to human like pain, joy, suffering, um, and this communication that's that's fully realized in the body that's yeah. you know yeah and it it's like you said at the beginning of that there are so many different ways to listen to and experience music nothing will ever match what a live performance can do yeah it, it won't it doesn't matter how good your speakers are or how, how your headphones or whatever you do, whether it's with your phone or your home system, being there and experiencing all the things that you talked about from a, from a owning the stage and the colors that are exuded from the performance and the way that somebody uses every other part of their body beyond just their mouth to, to, um, to, to make an impact on, on somebody. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think we'll ever lose sight of that. And we hope that people will realize that um, opera as a, as an art can, can do even just with the voice itself can do so much beyond what a lot of other music can, and then throw in the live element of it. And it's, it can be, it can be pretty, uh, pretty spectacular. Yeah. And, and thinking of it a lot as not only existing at, in this realm where it does something more important or better than other art forms do, but that it lives alongside other art forms. Sure. That Adele gives you the chills. What Try out Maria Callas because she'll give you the chills for the same reason. Those mm-hmm. two people, they get it and they have this power that they can communicate in a way that we respond to. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that that's what's happening at the opera. They think that it's um, a bunch of people dressed up very fancy and drinking champagne and being, you know, hoity-toity. But it's like the realest thing out there. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've talked to a number of people about that. That doesn't, You don't have to go in and be fancy. You just go in as you are and experience it. Don't Don't try to feel like you have to fit into some sort of culture to, to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how you experience the triad in Winston-Salem outside of music. Maybe it's a, what, what's the ideal Friday night, uh, favorite restaurant, favorite activities, that, that oh. kind of thing. Okay. Well, let's see. I'm really excited about Collidium opening. Yes. So February, mid February 17th, somewhere around there. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. It's it's coming up soon. Yeah. I, I would love to tell you that that's what I was going to do later today, but it's not open yet. Not yet. It's close. But, but, but yeah. it is. Yeah. I'm really excited for that. Um, I love to eat at West End Cafe. Mm. That is just, you will never, you're, you will always be happy that you went and, um, they're one of those places that's been around for so long, and you see people who've been working there for years. Um, it's a, a a restaurant that really cares about the people that work there, and they can make a career there. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a you don't find that everywhere. I I love going to West End Cafe. Good spot. Yep. Yeah. Um. Let's see. What else would I do on a Friday night? Perhaps go check something out at um, the theater. Um, maybe go to a class at Sawtooth. Um, 
There are so many things you could do. There's so many options. Mm-hmm. There's so many options, which is what's great about our, our, our city. My partner owns uh, a craft cocktail bar downtown called Fair Witness. So okay. Go there, get a delicious drink in a very cute, cool atmosphere. Um, yeah, so many. I think I, what I would say is I would go to the small businesses and not the chains. Bingo. <laughs> Yeah. Great answer. Great answer. Okay. Um, anything else that you would like to leave our listening audience with in terms of maybe maybe uh, another uh, pitch for, for the upcoming performance of The Marriage of Figaro, which you will be playing the Countess, and that will be in March. Uh, give, give the folks a, a little taste of what they might experience if they go ahead and get their tickets. Okay. So um, this is has maintained its status as one of the most performed operas of all time. Um, And there's some good reasons for that. The music is just absolutely um, entrancing. I feel like it pulls you right in from the very second it starts. Um, Obviously, Mr. Jamie Albritton being at the the helm of the orchestra is going to make that just, you know, just be how it's supposed to be. Um, so swells and throngs of instruments creating colors and textures that you're just not going to want to stop listening to crazy storytelling and funny antics and really heartfelt, deep, um, moments of goodness and love and friendship. The finale of the final uh, act has one of the most gorgeous pieces of music. Um, And it's not just me saying this because the Countess sings it. It's known throughout the lands as one of the most beautiful, like, 47 seconds of music that's ever existed when the the Count um, asks for forgiveness and the Countess forgives him. Just, if you don't know it... You got to see it. And if you do know it, you got to see it. Yeah. Um, But I think it's, it's, it's smart storytelling. It's, um, it's really savvy critique on um, the absurdity of hierarchical systems. Um, It still seems revolutionary, even though it's been a couple hundred years since it was written, it still seems like, (gasps) oh my gosh, did a servant really just say that to someone of the noble class? That's crazy. We still have problems with that um, now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's just incredible storytelling, and the music will tell you everything you need to know. That's great. Uh, all right, Jody Burns, uh, we'll leave with this. Where can folks follow you if they want to keep up with uh, with your work? So I have a website, JodyBurnsSoprano.com. I have an Instagram, uh, which is also Jody Burns Soprano. I'm on Facebook. And <clears throat> the UNCSA website uh, will always tell you if I've got a concert coming up um, that's involving the school. And, you know, Piedmont Opera, apparently they like me around here, so I might be back, but you got to come <laughs> see this one first. Well, thank you for being a guest on our first podcast of the new year, and uh, all the best in the upcoming performances. Thank you, and Happy New Year. It's great talking with you. Mm-hmm.